All right. So if you're just joining us, my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here. And like Michael said a moment ago, we are all about following after Jesus. That involves every week opening up the scriptures and learning from him his way. And we're just about three weeks into our fall series, which we're calling Lord Teach Us to Pray. And today we're going just a little bit deeper into that Jesus's vision for prayer today. So with that, let's, um, let's read this passage of scripture together. Actually, do you think we were up for a challenge this morning? You guys up for a challenge? Woo! It's just a small challenge. Let's read it out loud together as a church, okay? It's a super small challenge, but let's, let's do this. And, and remember, this is actually uh, the, when Jesus teaches us to pray, this is the prayer that he prays. This is the form or the pattern of prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. So let's say this out loud together. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. So, From the day of Pentecost, for the first 300 years of the church, the people of Jesus gathered three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, for prayer. So just imagine that. Before work, on your lunch break, and after work, on your way home. What if you paused with a community of faith to seek God's presence together. How might your life be different if that was your regular habit or your regular rhythm? This was the the defining daily rhythm of the early church. And the early church, as many of you know from church history, were marked with, with gratitude and thanksgiving. In their daily prayer rhythms, they were asking God to have the courage in case today was the day that they were going to be martyred, as many of them were. And they were also contending for the salvation of the lost. And for her first 300 years, the church was like a roaring furnace for the kingdom of God's advance. And if you're looking at it from like a historical perspective, it really makes no sense. Because Christians only made up maybe 2 or 3% of the entire population of the Roman Empire at the time. And although they were just such a small minority, they were on the cutting edge or the front edge, if you will, of all kinds of really important societal change in the best way possible. For example, they they were the ones who were taking care of the poor in the first century. So the Romans had some social services, but they weren't enough. And so the Jesus people, they were the ones who were compassionate and gracious and charitable. And they picked up where the Roman Empire left off, the equivalent of like Medicare and Medicaid today. They picked up where the Roman Empire left off. They were also uh, people of great integrity. So despite the empire's like best efforts to eradicate Christianity throughout the Roman world through public execution, the church was uncontrollably and exponentially growing because the martyrs were such a compelling witness that Jesus is alive. Imagine, imagine with me for a second, watching someone getting executed for claiming that Jesus is Lord and their integrity and death was so compelling that it leads you to want to become the very thing that got him or her killed. See, the empire was completely powerless. Even with all of its violence and dominance, they were powerless to contain the spread of the gospel because the, the witness of the martyrs were so, was so powerful and palpable. And three, although the church was multi-ethnic and they were spanned across the socioeconomic spectrum, they were devoted to one another as family. The literature that survived from the first couple hundred years of the church are filled with conversion stories. And I mean filled with conversion stories of people who were irresistibly captivated by the familial love of the early Jesus people. And then they became Jesus people themselves at great list of their personal lives because their sentiment was like, man, if this kind of love exists, then it has to be divine, and I, and I want in on that. So how do, how do you explain this disproportionate positive power and influence in an overwhelmingly pagan society. Let me ask the question again. How do you explain this disproportionate positive power and influence in an overwhelmingly pagan society? Now, if you can't guess my answer to that question, 
then I haven't been doing a very good job in this series on prayer. Clearly, uh, my answer, and I firmly believe this, it was their devotion, the early church's devotion to the daily rhythm of morning, midday, and evening prayer. Um, Now, just a little bit of fair warning. I'm about to hammer this point home aggressively like our future depends on it. And the reason why is because I actually believe that it does. And I intend to do my part in the church today. So in this really crazy turn of events, it was the year uh, 313 AD, the way of Jesus became what we now call Christianity, and it was recognized as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And somewhere along the way in the early 300s, the church lost her resolve to pray. So I want you to think about that for a second. Somewhere along the way, when Christianity became the official religion of the empire, they lost the resolve to pray. I'm not saying that Everything before this date, the church was perfect, and after that, the church was a mess. But what I am saying is that when Christianity became the norm, big, ornate church buildings started to go up, and prayer went down. When you look at church history, we lose track of the daily prayer rhythm. We don't know what happened to it, but at somewhere along the line, they lost their resolve to pray. And this is where, like, your cynical Western Civ professor picks up the story, right? With all of the religious corruption, holy wars, abuse of power, and on down the list. Prior to that, of course, the church was far from perfect. But there was a compelling witness in the early centuries after Jesus. So reclaiming the daily prayer rhythm of the early church, I think, is the order of the day. And at worst... Reclaiming the daily prayer rhythm will connect you and I together in the presence of God and form you into a person of gratitude and praise. That's the worst case scenario. Three moments of sacred pause a day just to enjoy God's presence and to connect us together in his family. Please pick up my lame attempt at sarcasm. I'm not actually saying that that's a bad case scenario because it's not. It's awesome. I'm told by my friends that that I'm not sarcastic enough, and so therefore when I sound sarcastic, or when I am sarcastic, it comes off strange, like you did just now. Um, So, (laughs) all right, all right, I'll take it, I'll take it. But, but, but notice, your, your, your constant access to the Holy Spirit is what the Old Testament saints were desperate for and never received until the, 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 the Messiah Jesus tore the veil. And when you read the Psalms from that lens, the the Psalms are like dripping with holy envy for your relationship with God's presence. And prayer is something that we do because this is a gift from God. I I love Psalm 27, 4. It says, um, one thing I've asked of the Lord, this only will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and meditate on him in the temple. Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. It's my contention that this is holy envy from the Old Testament saints that we get to read their words thousands of years later, and we have the gift of God's presence in the here and now, and we can enjoy him. And this is the primary reason why you should pray. But that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, if we reclaim the daily prayer rhythm of the early church, is that we will enjoy God, one. And number two, we'll get to see and experience an awakening to the gospel of Jesus in our time. That's the best case scenario. A turning of the tides in society where your loved ones, the people that are in your life, are saved and become disciples of Jesus. That's the best case scenario when we reclaim the daily prayer rhythm. I don't know if this is hitting you and you're excited about it, but let's get excited about it because that is an exciting proposition is that we would come to enjoy God and so would our friends and neighbors. Now, we live in a very different time in history. Our society, if anything, is deconverted from Christianity and is largely unimpressed by the people of Jesus. If anything, we have a disproportionate lack of influence in our culture because there's still a majority of people who will check the box on the census form that comes into their mail a couple times um, every few years. But the secular vision has been more compelling for decades, if not more. And I'm not saying that that's you, because clearly you're here and you're patterning your life after the way of Jesus. But I am saying that that is true on the whole in the United States and most of the modern West. 
Now, because you know my conviction about the daily prayer rhythm and things like this, you know that I think it's relevant that most Christians only pray seven minutes a week. I think that those two situations, those two data points are linked. And there's good and bad news here. The bad news is that it's getting more and more awkward and unpopular for you to be a Jesus follower out in the open, right? The fact that you're friends with me is not scoring you any social credit on the street. I'm sorry, I can't help you out there. It's not, it's not something I can do for you. But the good news is that secularism, although it's a popular vision of the good life in this decade and on the West Coast, it's all sizzle and it's no steak. You know what I mean by that? Or like to borrow Jesus' metaphor, it's like building a house on the sand. It, it might be convenient, you might like the view of the beach or whatever, but it won't stay standing when the storm on the horizon rolls in. And the foundations of secularism, we're watching them crumble before our very eyes in 2022. Andrew Dobunko, who's a sociologist with a cool name from Columbia University, he writes about the emptiness of, you like that one? Okay, um, he writes about the emptiness of hope in a secular consumerist society. So hope in a secular consumer society is like this. This is what Andrew Delbunko says. Hope is the way that we overcome the lurking suspicion that all of our getting and spending is nothing more than our fidgeting while waiting for death. <laughs> Ouch. That is uh, a biting critique of our society. And that's what you get when you add consumerism to nihilism. It's just... That's all that it is. One day, all of the freedom in the world, all of the wealth in the world, all of the recreation and accumulation just does not do it for you anymore. And on the other side of that emptiness is an abyss of like nothing. And I don't say this with guile or pretension or like, I don't know. I don't say it like that. I say it with compassion for the deep loneliness and helplessness that our society is confronted with apart from Jesus. And yet we can stand here, and we do, with real hope for the future of our city, because when one kingdom crumbles, another one rises to take its place. That is just the law of the universe. When one kingdom crumbles, another one rises to take its place. So the vision of secularism and the failure of that vision, rather, is an opportunity for the kingdom of God. I think there is divine potential in the moment that we find ourselves in, in our society, in 2022. There is going to be a vision of the good life that comes up, rises up to take the place of secularism, and it will be the new prevailing vision of the good life in our society. And you and I are here, and we've already been singing aloud that Jesus is alive and that he is the king and all of that. And according to a recent poll, 94% of us believe that the best thing that can happen to a person is to meet Jesus. So there you go. Why not a widespread awakening to the gospel? Don't we basically all agree that our city turning to Jesus in mass would be glorious? Yeah. It would be. It would totally be. But the problem is actually with our strategy for engaging a culture where we've lost our compelling witness. It needs work. Let me repeat that. The problem is with our strategy for engaging a culture where we've lost our compelling witness. It's in need of a lot of work. Here's what I mean. Our answer cannot be, well, I hope that all of those people who really need Jesus will wind up dropping into church next Easter. And Andrew, you better have those relatable anecdotes ready to go. I'm like, fine, okay, I'll work on my anecdotes. That's not the point. The point is this. No amount of clever packaging will measure up to whatever rival kingdom is coming after secularism in the next 5, 10, 15 years if the church has lost her resolve to pray. The most explosive era of the gospel was when 2% of the population was filled with love for one another, charity for the poor, devotion to Jesus as Lord, and an unbending resolve to pray the kingdom come. See, the biography, and this leads us to our text for today. So the bi bi biography of Jesus' life in the Bible is called the gospel, right? The gospel, you guys know that. And it's where the big sort of grand narrative of the Bible finds its crux or its climax. And in the middle of that story is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is this line, Jesus teaching us to pray. And in the middle of that prayer is this one sentence. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is why a lot of scholars have called this line, 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven as like the center of the center of the center of the gospel narrative. It's the people of God, the people of Jesus, learning from him how to cry out for his perfect peace and his perfect reign to come here in Ben, like how his reign is in the heavenlies. His reign coming here, that is the center of the center of the center of the message to the people of God. And this is what the early church practiced. This is what our brothers and sisters in the thriving churches across Southeast Asia and much of the developing world world practice today. And I believe that this is at the center of the prayer culture of a church with a compelling witness in broader society. I believe that this is at the center of the prayer culture of a church with a compelling witness in broader society, particularly a society like ours. So how are we supposed to see this prayer, like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Let me sort of unpack it for you in a couple of different ways, and then we'll open the tables and have a time for baptism. Um, Dallas Willard has this to say on the prayer. He says, when Jesus directs us to pray, thy kingdom come, he does not mean that we should pray for it to come into existence, rather that we pray for it to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded. On earth as it is in heaven, with, the, excuse me, with this prayer, we are invoking it. As in faith, we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. In other words, when you pray God's kingdom come, you're asking for God's reign to extend to the part of the world that you're in. So we've kind of lost this in consumerism and in the American West, but um, the church has historically seen our city as the range and the realm of our spiritual responsibility. We take ownership for the spiritual well-being and the vitality of this geographical area. That's the idea of the parish. It's been around for thousands of years. And the early Christians understood this And when we pray the kingdom come, that's what we're doing. We're asking for God's reign to extend to the world that we live in and um, what we can see with our own eyes. So for me, what that means is I pray for God to reign in my heart. It's one of the first prayers that I pray in the morning every day. I pray for his reign to come in my family, in my home, in my community, in our church, and of course our city. And that encompasses all kinds of things from your health and safety to spiritual well-being, but also things much more than just, just that which we're going to be unpacking in the weeks to come. But I also love how Eugene Peterson nuances it out a little bit further for us. He says, the task is not to get God to do something that I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can participate in it. I love that. This is, this is a good distinction, right? See, there comes a time in the pattern of Jesus' prayer, and that's the one that we're in right now, the part that we're in right now, where we start asking God for stuff. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. This is us asking God for things. And God loves it when you ask for things. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. He's a good father. He knows how to give you good gifts. And we can all tell stories about how God has worked in our lives and given us incredible gifts in the years past. But he wants you to ask him for the things that you need, even for the things that you want. And there's so much I think that God wants to do in your life. You have not because you ask not, in the language of James. But when you do pray, asking God for things, prayer is about God's will, and it's about his kingdom in your world as it is in heaven. So Jesus is the one who kind of models this prayer for us. He's the one who showed us how, how it works. In the garden, he said, Father, if there's any way that this, pa- this cup can pass from me, please, let's do that. But then ultimately, not my will, but yours be done. So our prayers at our very best are when we recognize that we are partnering with God in advancing his kingdom. And this is ultimately for your good and for your best as well. Um, As I'm sure you are well aware, the range of my understanding and my knowledge is very limited. Sometimes my will is pretty pure and good, but many times my will is corrupted. So when I pray for Andrew's will to be done, which I never do overtly, but I do it all of the time, sort of subconsciously, not surprisingly, those prayers don't get answered the way that I want them to get answered. And if you've uh, 
if you've been here throughout the series, you know that I actually think that it's God's gift and grace to us when he doesn't give me what I want, when I don't know what I'm really asking for, if I'm asking with wrong motives, to quote James 4. Because he loves me, he's sparing me from answering my selfish prayers. But praying the kingdom come is about us getting on the page of his agenda. Is us getting underneath what he wants for our world. What are you up to in my space, in my community, in my world, and how can I join you in it? And this is an essential part of your praying, and it needs to be re, uh, reimagined in our time. Because the last couple of years, I feel like we've seen the culture wars in our country sort of just dominate our attention and get us sort of passionately distracted about all of the wrong things, things that really don't actually matter and not on the kingdom of God's advance. But praying the kingdom come is like your daily recentering of our hearts on God's larger agenda to unite heaven and earth under Jesus, Ephesians 1 verse 10. This is the ultimate goal of God's work in the world is to unite heaven and earth under Jesus. And so when we pray the kingdom come, we're centering ourselves under that agenda as opposed to praying for our own agendas. And this, of course, takes time. What ends up happening, though, is that my heart gets burning in the right direction again. I start to want the right things. Praying the kingdom come has taught me that I can care about all kinds of things, including some of the NFL games that we're missing right now. But I'll never care about anything more than the tearing open of heaven and Jesus coming down to take his rightful place as the king of kings, the, the lord of lords, and the beginning of the end. Right? This is what ultimately my life and your life is aimed at and towards. So if anything does sort of creep in and occupy more affection or attention or focus or energy than necessary, when I pray the kingdom come tomorrow morning, the Lord will gently and graciously convict my spirit and get my heart burning in the right direction all over again. Are you with me so far? Awesome. Okay, thanks for hanging with me. One more little detail before we get into our application, which is this. The ancient's daily prayer rhythm your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, was not like un unrelated to their witnessing power. It was the source of their witnessing power. You know, sometimes we bifurcate things out really uh, all over the place. But what my, my supposition is or my premise is that the daily prayer rhythm in the church and the source of the early church's uh, witnessing power were one in the same or they're very interrelated. You can't have one without the other. So here's what I mean by that. The, the, the early church is filled with stories of people being burned at the stake. They were martyred by being burned at the stake. And you don't do that singing hymns in, in total peace unless you have a deep sense of the resurrection power that you're about to experience. See, that kind of holy confidence, it only comes through the presence of God in prayer. And I believe that this is what the Lord wants for you. He wants you to have this sense of just total commitment to him in prayer. So praying the kingdom come, I think is the first essential step of engaging our culture with the gospel of Jesus. There's so many different ways and more steps that are required to intentionally and in God's grace engage our culture with the gospel, but praying the kingdom come, I think is the first essential step of engaging our culture with the gospel. And unless we do that, we haven't really even gotten started approaching our culture, engaging our culture the Jesus way. And I believe that this is how we regain our compelling voice in society, particularly in a society where we've really dramatically lost it. See, if we ever hope to see the grace of Jesus pervade our culture, we need to deeply sense that his grace is true and that it's true of us. In other words, you cannot expect anyone to believe with any conviction what you aren't already convinced of yourself. And your personal conviction about the truth of God's grace becomes real to you as you daily build on the fire of your faith in prayer. Are you with me? John Wesley, who was one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening, he was asked why thousands of people why he thought thousands of people would fall to their knees when he was done preaching to receive Jesus. And he very famously said that the Lord has set me on fire and people come to watch me burn. Which I absolutely love that sentiment and that statement. I believe that as you pray the kingdom come, 
you actually become a compelling witness to the gospel about Jesus because there's something alive in your spirit. And that's one of the things that the church has lost. And I, I, I know that we circle this idea together often. But there is an apathy in the Western church that the Lord wants to replace with a burning fire. And I believe the only way that we do that the only way that that actually takes place is if we take God up on his offer to meet with him daily. Amen. That's how we do it. So praying the kingdom come is the first step in engaging our culture. And that's something that we need to master as a community. But praying the kingdom is also where we gained what Brian Walsh calls a prophetic imagination. A prophetic imagination. And here's what that means. He wrote this book in the 80s called Subversive Christianity, and it's this awesome book, by the way. If you're a reader, you should definitely pick that one up and read it. It's fantastic. Brian Walsh, Subversive Christianity. And in it, he writes this. If we are, in fact, in a situation in which the worldview of our culture is in decline, and if its cultural imagination has run dry, and all it can do is mouth the old formulae, of a life of prosperity for all. And if that situation is exacerbated by the captivity to the impotent imagination of our culture, then what we most desperately need is a spiritually renewed imagination. You see, for a prophet or for a prophetic community, the question is never whether or not a vision or a worldview is realistic, viable, practical, or implementable. If that is our first question, then this is a simply an indication of how our imaginations are held captive by a pragmatic, materialistic, and secular culture. No, our question must be, is it imaginable? And whether a vision is imaginable depends upon whether the integration point of that vision, indeed the author of that vision, can make it happen. So the question comes down to whether you can imagine a God who is not a passive observer of human affairs and world history, but a passionate participant in those affairs and that history. Come on. So good. So if you've been here through the series, you know that we've talked about the reasons why the church has not been praying. Because it's become this really stale ritual that, quite simply, most Christians just do not do. But when you pray the kingdom come daily, this is what happens. I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in those of you who are devoted to pray. Slowly, daily, on the regular, as you pray the kingdom come, your imagination is sparked and renewed to the point where you begin to see what is possible when God's kingdom takes over. And you begin to have, like in the language of Jesus, eyes to see and ears to hear what others cannot. But you can because you are awake to the presence of God. And in my experience, the more that you pray the kingdom of God, the more obsessed with the kingdom of God you become. And it's just this thing that you just find yourself not being able to live without. Um, one, I think, stellar example of this is my friend and mentor, Michael Gray. I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of great mentors over the years, my dad being one of them, Phil being another, many people, and I'm very grateful to that. But the person who probably taught me to pray more than anyone else is this guy by the name of Michael Gray. He's a really uncelebrated lawyer who became a missionary, and he started this ministry to the north of Africa, and still not very many people pay attention to it. No one's following him on Instagram. No one's reading his book. He'll probably die a very quiet man in his home, you know, hopefully decades from now. But what, what God has done through his life is so remarkable to me. And I think it's so incredible to see the, the, like the kingdom stuff that's emerged from his life. So uh, the way that his ministry started was about probably 15, 20 years ago, something like that. And their goal was to share the gospel in the north of Africa, particularly where there's a lot of like militant Islamic terrorists. That's kind of the area of North Africa that they're interested in sharing the gospel. And they wanted to do that through planting churches. But in his brilliance, which I think was probably just inspired by the Holy Spirit, Michael did not go over to the north of Africa to start a church. He went to go start a prayer meeting. And he just started a prayer meeting with a few... African men and women somewhere in a hut somewhere and they just started to pray the kingdom come God your will be done in Burundi as it is in heaven and when they devoted themselves to prayer 
what ended up happening is over time, one church got planted until another church got planted, until another church got planted. And everywhere that they went, the first thing that they did was they started prayer meetings, prayer gatherings. And over the course of the last 15, 20 years, there have been hundreds of churches that have been planted because of these prayer meetings. People praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And there's incredible kingdom of God work that's happening, even miraculous things that they're seeing happen. And with a regularity and frequency that, frankly, we just do not see over here in the West. And I think it's directly connected to our lack of resolve to pray and their resolve to pray. And it's absolutely insane to think and to see what God has done through this ministry. Again, their budget is super small. They have a really unsexy website. I'm sure that their like, whole like, social media presence is terrible and all this stuff. But what God is doing in Sudan, where people are today killed for being Christians, is remarkable. They cannot stop or slow the growth. Do you see? There is a, a, a power in the presence of God that when you are devoted to pray, things happen that just frankly do not happen when you do not have that resolve to pray. And I've learned so much from him over the years, and I'm really grateful for his influence in my life. C. Campbell Morgan, he's a 20th century, early 20th century writer, on the topic of prayer, he says that we are children of the dawn. We see into, like through the dark of night, through the void of emptiness, in our culture, and we can see what God is doing, the light of the morning. And so we long for and we desire God to move with great power. So one last final thing before we're done, which is, is Romans chapter 8. One other thing that I've seen, just anecdotally, as I pray the kingdom come and as I see it in some of you, is that what happens when we pray and commit ourselves to the daily prayer rhythm not only do we sort of regain this compelling witness and there's a new light and fire in us that doesn't exist without that, we also hunger again. And we long again. And we long for the right things. And that's what I want to be known for. If you remember Romans chapter 8, is this section of scripture where Paul says that there is a lot of, uh, the word that is repeated throughout the passage is the word groans. He says that all of creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. And then it says, we too, the sons of God, we groan for our adoption to sonship. And then this is what it says in verse 23. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans, or depending on your translation, groanings too deep for words. And he searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Essentially, this is what I'm getting us towards through the Scripture, what I believe the Scripture is teaching us, is that this crisis of desire around prayer and seeking God's kingdom is not a crisis of knowledge, it's a crisis of desire. Where we long for other things besides God and his kingdom. We've got our priorities out of whack. We've been passionately distracted about secondary things that are not the real point. And so we, what we need is a prophetically renewed imagination where our eyes are open, ears are open to what God actually wants to do and we realize that it's more than just life on this planet Earth. It's actually about a transcendent purpose that goes beyond it and into eternity. This is why Paul is able to, I think, with deep passion, cry out that what is being stored up for me in the new creation is not even worthy of being compared to the suffering that I experience here in this life. There's a glory, there's a glory that's waiting for me on the other side. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's his sentiment, that's his attitude, that's the way in which he lives his life. I think the daily prayer rhythm is how we recapture that desire and longing for the stuff that actually matters in eternity. And I think that's how we have eyes to see it. Are you guys with me? There's a lot more I wanted to say.
Let me end with this. Every, every few months, um, someone will ask me, like, if I'm ever going to write a book, which is sincerely one of the most, like, flattering things that you could <laughs> say to somebody like me, and I always am genuinely really grateful from the question, the thought that anyone would want my work in print is kind of shocking to me and, and everything else, but I am genuinely flattered by the question. And um, normally... Uh, when, when somebody asks me that question, I'll, I'll, I'll say something like this, maybe, uh, but not for a really long time, because most of my favorite books were written by people when they were much, much older, very wise, and had a lot of experience. And that's true. I think a lot of books get written about 20 years too soon. And then what I'll normally do is kind of change the subject and talk about how weird pop culture Christian publishing is and the fact that somebody has a big Instagram following means that they should somehow crank out five books on subjects that they're not truly experts in and I just go kind of cynical with it or at least that's just kind of how my attitude goes. So a couple weeks ago, actually at the men's retreat, a few of the guys asked me that question. He said, what about, like, have you ever thought about reading? Again, totally flattered. I gave him my standard answer. But as I was walking away from that conversation, I admitted to myself that I've actually been deflecting the, the question for years because of my, some of my insecurities and disappointments. The reality is, is that I do have an idea for a couple of books. The main one that I actually at times lay awake at night thinking about is a book that isn't written yet, but I will eventually call Leading for Renewal. And the subtitle is As an Ordinary Leader in a secular age. And I've been like thinking about this and praying about this for years. I have all of the scriptures and the principles. I've had them down pat. I'm giving them some of them to you today. And I could write a draft probably in a couple of weeks because it's, it's very much the topic and almost the aim of my life. But the only way that I actually want, the re, and the reason why I've been deflecting this, the only way I actually want to write the book and the only way that it will actually be worth reading is that it has to be a book of stories. It has to be a book of stories, stories of actual human beings turning to Jesus in our time. I don't want to tell other people's stories. I don't want to talk about the Moravian church and the Hebridean church and the first and the second and the third great awakening anymore, only as fodder for what God is actually doing in our time and space. I want to tell stories that happen here in Bend in the 2020s. And intuitively, I know that those stories will be preceded by a praying community. And so I have no interest in writing the book until we catalyze our hearts to pray the kingdom come. That's it. So what we need is we need you. We need you with a spiritually renewed imagination with you groaning in your spirit about the new creation, centering yourself daily on praying the kingdom come. And you're here with me helping us build a furnace for the gospel to spread in our city. And then maybe one day I'll get to write my book. But hopefully it will be one of the least important things that happens here. Because the things of substance that really happen are not words on a page that you get to take home and read and forget about. But actual lives that have been transformed by the gospel about Jesus. That's what we long for. And I, and I genuinely... Um, I've ran out of ways to ask you to pray with me. You know what I mean? And, and so I just got to keep coming to you and just keep calling you to pray with me. Pray the kingdom come with me. Will you do that? Will you join me? Will you become a praying church with me? And of course, you can always join us on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. We pray here at the chapel. It's a good way if you're not a uh, if you're new to prayer or whatever, this is a good way for you to learn how to pray. And I hope that our prayer gatherings here in person grow and grow and grow into a burning hot furnace for revival. All of the great awakenings in the history of the world were always preceded by a praying community. And that's what I long for. But more than that, I am excited to announce to you something new that we've actually been working on for the last couple of months. Um, that's like a new daily prayer rhythm that you can join us uh, with and in, and we're going to be doing this prayer rhythm with some help from our friends at 24-7 Prayer. This is really cool. Again, I've been sort of geeking out on this for the last couple of months and really looking forward to telling you about it. 
Um, Riverbend, along with three other churches along the West Coast, we've been invited to beta test the new 24-7 prayer app. It's an international ministry that prays around the clock for spiritual revival. And the app is called The Inner Room. And uh, Tyler Staten, who's our friend and pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland, he created the app in partnership with 24-7 Prayer. And it's all about reclaiming the daily prayer rhythm of the church. Morning, midday, and evening prayer. Three moments of sacred pause for you to enjoy and pray the kingdom come. And our goal, what we really want, is to challenge each of you uh, to download the app today, to turn on the notifications, and pray with us uh, day in, day out. So here is the QR code for the Inner Room app. And literally, I know, I realize uh, the irony of this. I'm normally telling you to not be digitally distracted and to keep your phones in your pockets and stuff, but now I'm actually asking you to pull your phone out, scan this QR code, and begin downloading the app. Now, as it's downloading, a couple of important things that you need to know. There's nothing miraculous about an app. There never will be. It's just, you know, code and tech and whatever else. I'm not sure. I... I'm, as you can tell, I'm not an app developer. Um, but all this is is a tool to help develop your praying life day by day by day. And what's really beautiful about it is it has a, a, a pl- it is applying through sort of Tyler's beautiful prophetic leadership. Um, it's consolidating like thousands of years of wisdom from church history and now some of the most modern technology. And it's also um, the goal of this app is not for you to be dependent on the app to pray from here on out until kingdom come. The goal is that this app would be sort of like a temporary measure that one day you will hopefully grow out of needing. But for right now, sometimes we need the little bit of coaching. We need a little bit of help. If you've been with us at Riverbend at night, you know, most Sunday nights we talk about how we need to schedule things into our life. If we're going to actually prioritize, actually prioritize um, following after Jesus and develop these kinds of habits, it doesn't work to just like think it. We actually have to pattern our lives in that direction. So the beautiful thing about this app is it gives us um, uh, a lot of... uh, help, notifications mainly, to help us rhythmically pray. So now that you've downloaded the app, I want to show you a couple of different features of the app, and then I want you to start praying right away. Okay, so here we go. Once you download the app, you're going to find that, or you're going to find that icon in the app store, and you're going to download it, and then you're going to get to this screen here. Let's get started. That's what you want to select. And then there's a lot of features of the app that we're not actually going to focus on right away. We're just going to focus on the daily prayer rhythm aspect of it. So um, down at the bottom, you'll see this little section here that says uh, skip and start with a blank list. So you want to hit that. And then the next, uh, once you've done that, um, next slide. Amazing. Then um, there's another little notification that's going to pop up. And um, again, we're just going to skip over that for right now so that we can get to one of the main features of the app that I'm really excited about. So you're going to click the X up in the top left corner. And then you're going to get to stage five or step five. And you'll get to this, um, this is the boards basically of the app. And you're going to go to the little drop down menu that says my board. And down, um, once you do that, you're going to find this other board called the Daily Prayer Rhythm. And that's the one that you want. So again, if you've, been, uh, if you've downloaded it now, go through these steps because it, it will really help you. Then once you do that, it's going to take you to this board here. Morning, midday, evening prayer. Literally the exact rhythms of the early church. And you're going to select on morning prayer. And what you'll see here is what the morning prayer looks like. It's just a three-minute guided meditation with some music and some, uh, some scripture reading and a few prompts to pray. Very simple. Again, anchored in the scripture and in the history of the praying church. And what you can do here, and this is the, kind of the point, is you can go up to this right-hand corner where um, it might be a bell or a pen. They've been updating the app over the last few days. So you want to select the the one that's the the pen or the bell or whatever, and this is what it's going to do. It's going to send you to set a reminder so that, again, you won't forget about your new commitment to, to, to pray every day or to pray three times a day. It'll actually just be like an alarm on your phone or like a, any kind of no, push notification. You'll just be reminded. Remember you said you were going to pray right now, and then you'll be directed 
right to this section of the app. So uh, just to give you an idea, what I've done is I've set up my morning rhythm, my morning prayer to be at 6 a.m. And then uh, the midday prayer, which you can just go back to steps 7, 8, and 9 uh, to do the rest of it. Um, or to do the other two rhythms. I've set the midday prayer for noon, the evening prayer for 9.30. And again, simple three-minute guided meditations to get you in the habit of praying. And hopefully in a few months, you won't even need the notifications anymore. It'll just be ingrained to your daily rhythm of prayer. Now, this is a cool deal. I'm really excited about it. Again, Riverbend is one of the few churches that's been invited to kind of beta it. So you guys can give us feedback how it's working for you and stuff like that. And hopefully over the next couple of months, it'll be improved and stuff like that. But keep this in mind. So you're going to be praying daily, three times a day, short little prayers, not a huge heavy lift, just a little bit of praying every day. Um, And it'll be individual. It'll be by yourself in your prayer closet at home or in your bedroom or in your living room or whatever, but it'll be more than that. It will be you plus me, plus the rest of our praying community, plus the other churches across the West Coast who've committed to this sacred rhythm as well. And so much like the early church rhythm that would gather morning, midday, evening prayer, we pray individually, but we're also praying in this corporate body. We are all a part of the body of Christ, and we're all praying together the same thing. The kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you guys excited about a new prayer rhythm? Downloaded the app? All right. And I thank you even just for those of you who humored me to download the app. But I genuinely hope uh, that this becomes a part of your daily practice. Um, And again, our dream for you is that you would actually, in your lived experience, feel the same passion that we feel towards God, his presence, and the coming kingdom of God. And I genuinely believe that as we commit, as a praying church, that in in our lifetime, we'll be able to look back and say, gosh, this is something that we could have never done in our own strength. Look at what God is doing and look at the movement that God has brought to our city. That's our dream. That's our hope. So that was a lot. But now it's time to respond in prayer. So let's all stand to our feet and let's respond. So um, this is, a, this is a, an important moment. And if I lost you along the way, because as usual, I ranted. Please just come back to me for a moment because this, this is an important moment. I tell my kids when we, when we pray and as we read the scripture daily together, you know, daddy has a lot to say, but when God is speaking, we really want to listen. And so as we turn our attention to him now, we just invite you, Father, to send your spirit on us. We just want to say thank you so much that we can call you by the name Dad and that you are a good father. So good. You're so good to us. And our desire is for you, Lord. Our desire is for you. Our goal in prayer is to enjoy you, to connect with you, to grow with you for your character to sort of rub off onto us. And our goal is to see your kingdom come. You have awakened uh, our hunger. You have awakened our hearts. We're actually very satisfied by you. But we're not content to manage the decline of the church that some have resigned to believe is inevitable in the West. We're just your sons and your daughters here today going, nope, that's, that's not the story. That's not, that's not it. We Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive and that you are victorious. And when you come and when you reign, God, it's like 
it's like peace and flourishing and goodness just all begins to rise among, among us. And so we pray that you would. We pray that you would come in great power right now and that you would just catalyze our hearts for the renewal of our city. And may we be the faithful ones who are alive and who are committed to the daily rhythm, the resolve to pray. May we look back in the coming years and just love what we got to see with our own eyes. So you guys, now is the time for us to respond. And we're going to respond a variety of different ways. Of course, we're going to come to the, the table of communion as we always do. And we're also going to sing as we always do. That's a part of our rhythm and we intend to keep it. It's a way that sort of pulls our hearts towards the Lord. But as Sam told you at the beginning of the gathering, this is also a, a baptism Sunday. So this is a day where some of you who haven't yet been baptized are going to obey Jesus in that step. The way that I love to talk about baptism is that Baptism is to the Christian life with Jesus or your life with Jesus like a marriage ceremony or a wedding is to the marriage. It's like the public ceremony. It's the coming out in the open and publicly declaring, I belong to Jesus. And it's very possible that some of you have been here and you've been sort of following Jesus for a little bit now, but you haven't yet entered into the waters of baptism. And we just want to say there's a wide open invitation for you right now. Um, and if that's you, whether you've signed up or not signed up, uh, we have towels and shirts for you so you can get changed um, after you get dunked if you'd like. I just want to encourage you to head out. If that's you, I just want you to head out into the lobby. We're going to start singing here in a second. We're going to come forward for the, 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 the table of communion. But if you want to be baptized, now would be the perfect time for you to slip out into the lobby where our staff team will meet you and they'll bring you over to the baptismal, which is actually behind me. Um, yeah, just behind the screen here. So during the next few moments, just start moving your way that direction and then um, we will get you ready to go and ready to head into the waters of baptism. This is a celebration gathering. This is a victory where Jesus declares that you are his and you declare back to him that you belong to him. So Jesus, you are king. We love you for that. We respond to, uh, we respond to your word by, by singing, by communion, and for some of us, baptism. And Lord, we just we devote and we commit this time to you, and we love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, tables are open. Now is the perfect time for baptism. <laughs>